join me in prayer. Lord, again, we are so grateful that you have chosen to communicate with us through your word that we hold in our hands. Help us to grab a hold of this this morning as though you were speaking directly to us, for you are. May the Spirit of God have his way in our hearts this morning. Lord, we're, we're, we're eager and ready to hear from you this morning. Speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a true story of three kids in their early teens who decided to teach one of the young, younger neighborhood kids how to ride a bicycle. So the older kids went over with him the fundamentals of pedaling and steering and keeping his balance. And little David seemed to learn quickly. So they brought little David to the top of the hill and he bravely climbed on the bike and they sent him on his way. David's balance was a little shaky. The bike veered this way and then that way, but David held on. They all cheered as David careened from one side of the street to the other. He was doing it. David was riding the bike all on his own. David was halfway down the street when a Sobering thought hit one of the older kids. We didn't teach him how to use his brakes. (laughs) And so as David picked up speed, his look of triumph turned to terror. He was headed straight for the edge of a five-foot bank that went down into a swamp. And whoa was the last thing they heard David say as he disappeared over the edge. Well, David was dazed but still smiling. He was shaken but no bones were broken. What had gone wrong? Well, David had climbed onto a vicious cycle. He didn't know how to stop. And isn't that a lot like conflict? Once it gets going, things soon reach the point where they're out of control. Do you know how to use your brakes to stop the hair-raising ride of conflicts? Can we prevent a crash landing? Must conflict end with someone going over the edge. This morning's passage in Ephesians 4 addresses the subject of how unresolved issues and relationships can spin out of control in our lives. Friction in relationships may not result in any broken bones, but make no mistake about it, the wounds cause tremendous pain and hurt the church from functioning as the church. Just like many struggle physically with soreness in their joints, there are sore joints in the body of Christ today. Just as bursitis and tendonitis and arthritis are common problems, there's also parts of the church body that are in pain due to gossipitis, complainitis, and criticalitis. And it has caused inflammation among the various parts of the body in the local church. In some cases, frozen shoulder among God's people has even developed. As you know, inflammation is a reaction to injury and infection or irritation. And it's characterized by redness, uh, swelling, pain, and loss of function. Well, when God's people are injured by one another 
the result is also pain and loss of function in the body of Christ. Well, how do we bring that inflammation down? An immediate course of action where there's inflammation in our physical bodies is what's commonly called the RICE method. Rest, ice, compression, and elevation. Where there's inflammation in the local church due to injury or irritation, an immediate course of action is needed. It's found in one word, grace. Grace. It wouldn't be a bad idea to find these words over the entrance of our church. Grace is shown here. Because where grace is shown, the body thrives. Now, most of you are familiar with the story of Pilgrim's Progress. It's about one man's pilgrimage from sin to salvation and of the many people along the way who encouraged him in his progress. I'm sure you're familiar with the pilgrim's name throughout the, the allegory. It's Christian. But do you recall his original name? The story tells us in one scene where the pilgrim is conversing with a porter. The porter asks, what is your name? And the pilgrim answers, my name is now Christian, but my name at first was Graceless. Graceless. As we saw last week, there is the before and there is the after. At the moment we took God at his word, believed that we were sinners in need of salvation, and accepted the gift of salvation of eternal life by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for that salvation, we were given the name Christian. And prior to that, we could indeed be called graceless. But now that Christ has come into our lives, we should no longer be graceless, but rather people who understand grace, the need for grace, and in fact, full of grace. And like Pilgrim, our pack of sin has been unloaded at the cross. It's been unloaded. And by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Our lives have been changed because of Christ. We are forgiven people. But are we grace conscious? Are we characterized as gracious or graceless? Let me ask you, why are we so intolerant with and so critical of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Where's the grace? Please tell me, why is there so much self-inflicted wounding in the body of Christ? Where's the grace? question on the table for all of us to ponder this morning is this. Are we treating others the way Christians should be treated? Are we treating others the way Christians should be treated? And our focus this morning is on the passage that Nick read in in verses 26 through 32 of chapter 4 and including the hinge verse, uh, verse 25 of Ephesians 4. And what we see here in this passage is God's plan for healing offenses. This is a great place to go to learn the right way to resolve our disputes. And even though the word grace does not appear in these eight verses, they are amazing verses about the grace of God in our lives. We will need lots of grace to be the church when injury occurs. The next principle for being the church, and that's what we're looking at as we go through the book of Ephesians, the next principle for being the church is this. Being the church means grace is shown here. 
being the church means that grace is shown here. Let's not be as someone has penned the wounder of the healers rather than the healing of the wounded. And I speak to you this morning with love and affection for you and not out of anger. My own life comes under the sword of God's word that cuts me open and does surgery on my heart from this passage this morning. This passage is clear as to what we are to do when injured. Let's assume you have been hurt. Now what? How can we get the swelling down when injured? That's what we're asking. First of all, First of all, we need to put an ice pack on our anger. We need to put an ice pack on our anger. We need to cool down. Paul addresses the subject of anger. Look in your Bibles here in um, chapter 4, verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Paul addresses the subject of anger. It's been said that anger is momentary insanity. A man who was fed up with cockroaches that shared his apartment went to the store and bought 25 bug bombs. According to the label, just two canisters of the fumigant would have solved his roach problem. But in his anger, he was so fed up and so angry with these cockroaches, he closed the door on 25 activated bug bombs. (laughs) And when the spray reached the pilot light of the stove, It ignited, blasting his screen door across the street, breaking all his windows and setting his furniture ablaze. The blast caused over $10,000 in damage to the apartment building. And the cockroaches? Well, the man said, by Sunday, I saw them walking around. (laughs) It reminds me, though, of Proverbs 29, verse 11, that a fool gives full vent to his anger. Who pays the price? It's in his passion of anger that one might burn a relational bridge. It is when the heat is on that we say things that can't be forgotten. And in all my years of ministry, I have yet to see a conflict resolved when discussed in anger. As Proverbs 15.1 reminds us, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Notice the verse 26. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Literally, in the original, it says, be angry and sin not. You see, there is a time to get angry. Anger is not intrinsically evil. We're instructed in the book of James to be slow to anger, for man's anger does not work the righteousness of God. But you see, even the best motivated anger can turn sour if we're not careful. And our verse in Ephesians goes on to say that the time to stay angry is short. Look what it says there uh, in the middle of verse 26. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. In other words, deal with it ASAP. Now how many conflicts do you suppose would lose their power if we only follow this principle right here in verse 26 in our lives? Think about it. I mean, ask yourself, would you rather take 10 minutes to bring your anger under control and gain a positive perspective or spend the next several days or months doing damage control after the blow-up? Which? Which? 
Anyone can become angry, Aristotle wrote, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way, this is not easy. Stories told about a little boy who got into his fight with his older brother one morning. And somewhat outmatched, he took quite a beating. It was his pride, however, that suffered the most. The whole experience left him feeling bitter. In fact, he refused to talk to his brother all day. Bedtime came, and their mother, very much wanting to see the two make up, said to the younger, Don't you think you should forgive your brother before you go to sleep? Remember, the Bible says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The youngster looked, youngster looked perplexed, and he thought for a few moments, and then he blurted out, But mommy, how can I keep the sun from going down? <laughs> see, the boy's question reveals they had no intention of getting rid of his anger. Like riding a bike without brakes is anger if left unchecked. So when you see anger persisting in the midst of conflict, apply the brakes. Cool down. Put an ice pack on it. It's right here that many believers are peddling a vicious cycle they don't know how to stop. Begins with some kind of injury. Then anger kicks in, and then that anger is nursed, and an inflammation sets in called the grudge. And you see, Satan looks for the gap called the grudge. Look at verse 27. It says, On the heels of our allowing the sun to go down in our anger, do not give the devil a foothold. He's seeking a foothold in our lives. And for any of you who have done any form of mountain climbing, know the importance of footholds or handholds. They are essential for one's progress up the mountain. When we leave anger unresolved and unchecked in our lives, we give the evil one an advantage to make progress with us. That's what we do. And you know, no matter how long you nurse a grudge, it won't get any better. As it's been said, while you're carrying a grudge, the ones you're angry with are out dancing. That's true. Who pays the price for grudge holding? You do. Frederick Buchner had this to say about holding on to anger. He writes, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Have you been nursing in anger? Deal with it. Put an ice pack on it. Cool down. You say, but pastor, you don't understand how angry I am. You don't understand how badly I have been treated. Pastor, if you only knew what was said about me or what was done to me or how often he repeats the same mistake, you would think different about it. No, be a person of grace. Let it go. Release those rights. And a church united in grace and committed to resolving conflict can stand against Satan's effort to divide. He divides God's people right here. When anger is allowed to persist, it divides families and siblings and spouses. 
I ask you, how many nights has the sun set on your anger toward your spouse? Isn't it time to get on with life? Believer, are you angry with someone else in the body of Christ? Out of love for you, I plead with you to make it right. Don't let the sun set on your anger another night. Deal with it. How can we get the swelling down when injured? Not only put an ice pack on it, but also, secondly, we need to elevate others. We need to elevate others. If I were given the power to touch and heal one part of the body, I would touch the tongue. Frankly, it is the tongue that causes more inflammation than any other organ. And emails and Facebook messages and texts, they count too. Verse 29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk, do not let, or better put, stop using any unwholesome talk out of your mouths. Now the word unwholesome really isn't strong enough in our translations. The word was used of rotten wood or withered flowers or nasty smelling fish. Think foul or putrid or decay or something that is spoiled or a stinking locker room and you'll get the idea of unwholesome. But what words are considered unwholesome? At a church work day several years ago, there was a guy from the church who was following me around wherever I went. And finally I turned to him and said, why is it that you're following me around on work day here? I mean, why do you have to work right alongside of me? And he said this. He said, I want to hear what the pastor says when he hits his thumb with his hammer. <laughs> and I like to say that when using a hammer, I am like, I am like lightning. I never strike the same place twice. <laughs> and I admit that when I hurt myself with a hammer in some other way, phooey doesn't seem to cut it. I will admit that. But folks, we are to watch our language. As the next section mentions, chapter 5, verse 4, obscene language is out of place for imitators of God. But unwholesome talk goes well beyond foul language. As a matter of fact, Paul doesn't simply tell us to clean up our mouths. He speaks of a whole new way of thinking about language. There needs to be a radical way of thinking about our mouths. Our mouth is to be a vehicle of grace. It's not enough to ask, have I removed profanity from my lips? We're to ask a deeper question. Am I speaking now to edify? Is my mouth a channel of grace? And the rest of verse 29 says about our talk that we're to speak only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. What is this saying? I need to speak in such a way that supplies what is lacking in you in another person's life. And one thing that is lacking in the Christian community is telling others when they bless us. See, we need to spread affirmation around. That's kind of what we're talking about on Sunday nights. But Paul's admonishment in verse 29 addresses not only what we say, but why we say it. It goes after our motivation behind what we say. The purpose behind what we say ought to be what? To benefit others. So truth-telling, as it says in verse 25, has this qualifier to it. Will it benefit others? So if I use my words that I would call truthful in order to blow off some steam or to make myself feel better, or get that load off my mind, 
I violate the primary motivation to build up. Our truthful words may in fact be wrong words because they're actually designed to achieve something I am after and that they only benefit me. They shouldn't be spoken. They're unwholesome. Grace-filled words have power because they supply something that's lacking in you. The tongue of the wise brings healing, Proverbs 12, 18 says. One person said it this way, the greatest power in the world is not the nuclear bomb, it is not technology, it is not telling people off or throwing your weight around. The greatest power in the world is words motivated by love that speak to another person's fears. How do we bring the inflammation down? Talk with people rather than about people. When I criticize others, or when you criticize others on the way home from church, am I building up the faith of my children who are listening? And they're listening. They're paying attention. Reminded of of this little story of a blistering hot day when uh, this family had some guests for dinner. And the mother asked the four-year-old Johnny to return thanks. And he said, but I don't know what to say. And she said, the mom said, oh, just say what you hear me say. Obediently, the boy bowed his head and mumbled, oh, Lord, why did I invite these people over on a hot day like this? (laughs) They're listening. They're listening. Benefit those who listen. Does it? We need to put the brakes on when the words we are about to speak are for the purpose of self-edification, self-promotion, and self-elevation. I mean, after all, why do we cut others down? Because we then feel better about ourselves, right? So when the fire of conflict breaks out, we carry two buckets. I think I've used this before. We carry two buckets. When the fire of conflict breaks out, we carry a bucket of water, we carry a bucket of gasoline. Our words spoken will either be fuel for the fire or they'll help to put the fire out. The greatest motivation for wanting to bring the swelling down ought to be how broken relationships affect the heart of our comforter, our helper, our teacher, our divine resident in our lives. Verse 30 commands us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God who lives within us cannot smile when we are mistreating others who are housing the Spirit of God. It breaks God's heart. So is the Spirit of God singing over us or is He grieved with us? How can we really ungraciously grieve God's infinitely gracious Holy Spirit? We grieve Him with his unwholesome words. We need to elevate others. We need to put an ice pack on our anger. Third way we help to keep the swelling down is give the rehearsing of the past a rest. Give the rehearsing of the past a rest. Now, unless I miss my guess, there's a direct link between our speech in verse 29 and the attitudes we had to put off in verse 31. Follow along as I read verse 31. Get rid of how much bitterness? All bitterness, all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slandering along with slander along with every form of malice. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, what have you stored up inside? What have I? Can wholesome, beneficial words flow out of a heart that is bitter? Do you suppose dwelling on that mental file cabinet full of offenses is going to help you heal? There was a strange illness that hit a certain community. And it seemed odd that many in the community were suffering with the same symptoms. Tingling fingers, loss of energy, blinding headaches. Health officials were baffled as to what was causing this phenomenon. The illness had no apparent cause. Well, many years later, it was uncovered that years ago during the Depression, farmers would mix toxic chemicals near that site for use, use as pesticides. And so when the soil in that area was tested, it was discovered that serious concentration of poison continued to seep into the groundwater. It went undetected for years. And even though it was invisible and lay buried in the ground, it created major problems later on. Sounds a lot like unforgiveness, doesn't it? Keeping score, wanting others to pay, blaming others, self-pity, nursing offenses, bitterness are like undetected toxic chemicals that poison our spiritual vitality and cripple the body of Christ from being the church. When conflicts are allowed to fester and wounds are never effectively healed, the body becomes diseased and suffers. Bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness infect the entire congregation, making it weak. In some cases, it can even be terminal. John MacArthur expressed it well. He said, unforgiveness is a toxin. It poisons the heart and the mind with bitterness, distorting one's whole perspective on life. And verse 32 provides us with a sure way to get the swelling down. Look what it says. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each each other just as, underline that, Just as in Christ God forgave you. The battle against bitterness is fought by cherishing the experience of being forgiven by God. It's to look back to the cross and forward to the wonderful reality that our forgiving God offers us a future of endless reconciled tomorrows and sweet fellowship with Him. That's amazing grace. And so we're told, forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Forgiving one another puts the brakes on a conflict going over the edge. Now, I don't know what the issue is that you need to put to rest through forgiveness. But I promise you this, whatever that issue is, whatever the issues are, whatever the rehearsing of the past brings up for you, Whatever those are, I can tell you this, I can guarantee you, I can promise you this, God will not ask you to forgive any more than he has forgiven you. What's the alternative? A wise old sage shared this advice to newly married couples. He said, if you don't carry out the garbage, one day your house will become a dump. We could add, if we don't carry out the garbage in our church, someday our church will be dumped. We got carried out. Are you obsessed about the past at the expense of the future? If so, if so, I can safely say it's weighing you down. It's weighing you down. There's an old legend 
about three men. Each man had two packs. He had one on the front and one on the back. When the first man was asked what was in his packs, he said, well, in the pack on my back are all the good things that friends and family have done. That way they're hidden from view. And the front pack are all the bad things that have happened to me. And every now and then I stop and I open the front pack and I take things out, I examine them, and then I think about them. Because he stopped so much to concentrate on all the bad stuff, he didn't make much progress in life. Well, the second man was asked about the packs he was carrying. He replied, well, in the front pack are all the good things I've done. I like to see them, so quite often I can take them out to show them off to people. The sack in the back, I keep all the wrongs that are done to me. The hurts in life, the wounds, what people have said about me, the criticisms, and I carry them all the time. Sure, they're heavy. Yes, they slow me down, but for some reason, I just can't put them down. When the third man was asked about his packs, he answered, well, the pack in the front, that's great. I keep there, I keep all my positive thoughts I have of people, of of all the blessings that I've experienced, of the great things that other people have done for me. Oh, the weight isn't a problem. The pack is like sails of a ship. It keeps me moving forward. The pack on my back, it's empty. There's nothing in it. I cut a big hole in its bottom. In there I put all the hurtful things done to me and things that required my forgiveness or the the wrongs to be overlooked. They go in one end and out the other. So I'm not carrying around any extra weight at all. What are you carrying around? Be honest. What are you carrying around? Is it time to empty the pack, to cut a hole in the bottom and let the stuff drop out? Are you a sword joined in the body of Christ? Where is there inflammation in the body of Christ? Are you contributing to the soreness in the body or are you bringing a touch of healing? Are you treating others the way Christians should be treated? A mark of a healthy church, a mark of a healthy church is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of a reconciling spirit. Let's be the church that communicates loud and clear that grace is shown here. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for these words in Ephesians 4 and help us to take them to heart. May there not be any bitterness and unforgiveness that we're carrying around and weighing this church down, but rather... May we be able to function as intended, that we're the church, we're being the church, and that grace is shown here. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful fact that church is one foundation that's on Jesus Christ, our Lord. We build on him. And he's forgiven us for everything. How can we do any less? Show us, Lord, what's in our hearts this morning. Do surgery on my heart and our hearts. 
so we can better reflect Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.